public community meetings that have turned a little bit more into community information sessions. I'm your elected director to the Strathcona Regional District from Cortez, Noba Anderson, and it's my, my pleasure to be here. We have, um, over the last 10 weeks, done um, all kinds of community discussions from sort of how to deal with COVID to, from a, a business perspective, to moving more into um, some of the nonprofit work, grant and aid processes, um, food security, spoken with lots of the nonprofit sector here on the island. And today I'm delighted to talk all things fire and we have a real great roster of people joining us both from on and off island to speak about fire. So what I would like to do is just ask um, sort of the, in, the invited fire guests to introduce themselves briefly, your name and your hat. Um, and then we'll get into some opportunity for you to share a little bit about what you're up to in your respective programs and how you serve Cortez. Uh, and then open it up to those of you who are on the call but not fire experts to ask any questions. Certainly those fire folks ask questions of each other because we've got a you know, whole breadth of people here. This is a pretty informal opportunity to, to learn and share. And then I also invite anyone who's listening on the radio uh, Aton is in the station as my techie, and you can phone in at that point uh, or probably beforehand and speak with him and have your question noted. We don't have the capacity, I don't think, in the radio to do live call in, um, but Aton can certainly relay any questions or comments. So that's 250-935-0200. And there's my three-year-old kid who just woke up from a nap. So what I'm going to ask you to do is each of you, um, Jessica, Jeff, Carrie and Sean, as you're able just to introduce yourselves, I'm going to go find Papa and be right back. Hi, everyone. My name is Jessica Duncan. I guess I'll go first because Noba just mentioned my name first there. Um, so I'm a wildfire prevention specialist under the Coastal Fire Center. Um, so I work out of Parksville and essentially serve the whole Coastal Fire Center region, um, which includes Cortez Island, of course. Um, and my role is really related to prevention in the public messaging standpoint and the bigger prevention planning piece. So looking at statistics and analyzing what causes our fires and what we can do um, to help reduce those in the future. So thanks for having me today. I'll, uh, I'll go next. My name is Jeff Belcher. I'm the wildfire officer for the Sunshine Coast Fire Zone. So uh, unlike Jessica, who's uh, a regional employee for the whole Coastal Fire Centre, my focus is more for my specific zone, which kind of ranges from Howe Sound up to Butte Inlet, of course, the uh, Cortez Island included and, and many of the islands along the coast there. Um, and my focus is uh, some of the prevention work that Jessica does, but we also focus more heavily on kind of response if there are wildfires. So uh, thank you for having me as well. I think I'm next here. My name is Carrie Saxafrage, and I'm the president of the Cortez Community Forest Cooperative and one of the representatives to the board of the Community Forest General Partnership. The partnership is with the Clahoos First Nation, and it's actually the management body for the community forest on Cortez Island, which has about 3,800 hectares under its management. And that's it. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Noah. Uh, good afternoon, gang. My name is Sean Koopman, and I am the emergency coordinator 
for your local government, the Strathcona Regional District. I would hope that most of you, those that are listening, know me by now as I'm a week away from celebrating my four-year anniversary with the SRD. We are coming on to a milestone of the longest I've ever gone without visiting your lovely island, which is paining me deeply, but that's just the situation that dictates at this time. Great. Did everyone get a chance? Thanks for uh, covering there. Um, so I just wanted to offer a little bit of a high-level intro. Uh, we've had this glorious sort of wet month after, you know, a beautiful, hot, sort of dry month or two before that. It's been gardening heaven and the forests are doing really well. Um, but we're certainly coming into wildfire season and more and more I'm hearing my constituents concerned about the impacts of wildfire over the years, especially as we've had a number of really hot ones. Um, and would love to hear your reflections as, as you speak about sort of trends high level over the last number of years. Are you noticing hotter summers or, um, you know, drier summers or, you know, what are you seeing over time and what should we be paying attention to? Um, I certainly know as people's awareness and attention around climate change increases uh, and all of the the planning that the provincial government and all kinds of nonprofits have done in this region that wildfire is one of you know, the greatest risks and is more and more uh, in our awareness. Just speaking from a personal perspective, I'm, I'm a landowner here on Cortez and this year we've been doing a lot of fire smarting. Uh, so many of us as landowners really have a tension between loving living in a forest and close to the trees and yet not wanting our places to burn down. And, my father had a cabin just here on the property that burnt down a few years ago and it was in January, thank goodness, and uh, otherwise we would have started a fire here because there were trees really close. And so it was, a, it was a big wake up for me. And I have the luxury of having a husband with an excavator. I realize that's a huge luxury, but he, it's been on standby and we've been working for the last mm, two months really on um, you know, bringing all the brush out from the forest and taking down trees and getting a chipper up, which is hard to, to do on the island and having those chips chipped for the garden. And it's a huge undertaking. And we have, um, as I say, you know, the luxury of, of equipment and time, especially now in COVID, to be spending a lot of time outside. So it's just something that's really on my mind. And I know as the season warms up every year, and especially given our, our global uh, climate situation is more and more on the minds of just about everybody I know. So would love to hear from each of you and collectively how we can be more fire smart as a community, really. What can we be doing as individual property owners, as people recreating and, um, and being in this lovely space, and as community leaders and organizations and service providers, how can we have this island uh, not burn or burn less or less often or less severely? Uh, so Sean, yeah, I think you are with us. You're, you've downloaded the new Zoom bit. You're good? I'm good. Great. So I would love to start with you, Sean, and, and welcome. I just want to acknowledge Eli. Eli's joined us. He's with the Cortez Fire Department. Uh, welcome, Eli. So Sean, I'd love you to give us just a really high level um, notion about what your program does generally in the region and what kind of services you uh, provide or support here on the island. Uh, and then I'll get into asking you just a little bit about the chipper pilot and then um, the, the wildfire planning and the updates associated with that. So welcome, Sean. 
Uh, sounds great, gang. So if I suddenly mute myself, it's because I'm expecting my wife home anytime soon and the two dogs <laughs> will go absolutely ballistic. So at which point it'll be somebody else's turn for a bit. All good. Yeah, and then I'll and then I'll return to you eventually. So I I apologize in advance for this like oh, No, we, we're we're all juggling the best we can in many uh, yeah, home so working situations. So the Strathcona Emergency Program is one of the handful of truly regional services the district operates. So whereas our parks coordinator only works with parks in the electoral areas, planning electoral areas, et cetera, uh, myself and the health network coordinator, we're lucky enough to go everywhere from Reed Island to Cayuca, Chuklaset, First Nation, because the villages, the city and the electoral areas all pay into the service. I'm on call 24 seven to support emergency operations center activities. If I'm out of cell phone reception or basically an hour away from Campbell River, a contractor goes on call for me. Uh, anything from flood, pandemic, earthquake, wildfire always winds up on my desk, coordinating emergency exercises, applying for grants, uh, working with the wonderful volunteers, etc and I'll turn it back over to Direct Nova to ask some of the questions about the wood shipping program and some other items. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so as most people here on Cortez know, you just finished, uh, was it last week or not even, um, a wood shipping, I would like to say pilot. I mean, it was a one-off really at this point. My understanding is that there was a little bit of funds left over for some, from some wildfire planning. Um, and I had certainly been receiving a number of outreaches from constituents who are used to being able to burn large slash piles this time of year. Um, but because of the COVID air quality restrictions, there was you know, a complete burning ban of anything beyond a campfire size. And so a lot of people were, were rightly concerned about um, having all of this coursewoody debris around their property for the summer and not being able to burn it. And there's very limited chipping capacity here on the island. So Sean, I, I really take my hat off to your creativity you realize that some of these funds could be redirected towards a sort of a community curbside um, chippering program. Uh, I do want to acknowledge that there was certainly some understandable pushback from people who wanted to keep chips and have the chips on island um, and just acknowledging that it was a, a limitation of the funding that the chips had to be disposed of at a solid waste facility and I tried to figure out how to do that here on island at the Cortez Centre but it, we just couldn't muster that fast. But it really does beg the question about if this was a program that people really availed themselves of, how we might want to do this in the future. So I just, how, how did it go? Uh, how many people participated or what was our volume and what's your sense about the repeatability of it? Yeah, so final numbers are still coming in, but we took about 10 to 12 tons of wood chips off of Cortez Island. Uh, I don't know how many how, how that's divided between too many households that did not ask the contractors to pay attention to that great detail. Uh, I received a lot of positive feedback from residents about the service, both above and beyond, and Ocean View, which is a local Cortez business, did a great job not blocking traffic, cleaning up accordingly. Uh, as long as we continue to do this under the Community Resiliency uh, Investment Grant, we of course will be limited to the fire smart conditions of that grant. And I did have good conversations with community members that maybe this is something a local society 
could take over. Maybe this is a regional service that could be implemented once a year for either just Cortez or the whole regional district done with taxation. And if it's done that way, we can mulch it on island and we wouldn't be so restricted to the the, the limitations that are indicated in the grant. So it, it definitely seemed like it started some great conversation for sure. Uh, but the ferry breakdown did cause a bit of a delay, but we guessed that it would take one to two days to service both islands. And we still had the contractor going around and doing a double check on Cortez on Friday. So great to see. And if, if you're listening, if this service did encourage you to undertake fire smart measures around your property, not just, you know, getting rid of the brush you were planning to burn. That's great if you did that. But if you actually took out a chainsaw and removed the ladder fuels within that 10 meter zone around your property, as is something that you were meaning to do. And this was finally the spark that ignited the fire for you to do it. No pun intended. I just love to hear from you on that. Yeah, ditto. Thank you for that. And, and I certainly know that some constituents, you know, myself included, just had too much that we could possibly haul to the end of the driveway. And uh, thankfully, there is a chipper or two on island. But that's, that was just a great service to many people who were able to, to use it. Um, and then as a segue into speaking with Carrie about the community forest, can you just speak a little bit about the community wildfire planning that we've been doing on the island and the updates to that and then the grant that was applied for and I understand not received to do some uh, fuel load reduction work. So in partnership with Clahoose First Nation and with letters of support from the Cortez Community Forest and the Cortez Island Fire Department, the SRD applied for $50,000 through the last intake of the Community Resiliency Investment Grant to modernize the Cortez Island Wildfire Protection Plan and do a fuel management prescription in Hanks for a couple hectares in Hanks Beach Park, as well as the forested area that's adjacent to the recycling center, which carries at times highly combustible and flammable materials. Unfortunately, UBCM did not support the cost that we proposed for the fuel management prescription. A fuel management prescription essentially brings in a registered professional forester. They look at the couple hectares and tell you, this is what you could do to make this forested area more fire smart. You take that prescription, you apply for the grant again, and do what's called a demonstration project where the chainsaws and cutters actually come in and the work is performed. Uh, it's unfortunate that UBCM didn't support the prescription piece because I actually took the the lowest quote that was given to me from a local contractor and then took 20% off of that. But they also said that they didn't support it because we were working on recommendations from the current Cortez Island Wildfire Protection Plan, which was done in 2011. Uh, we are modernizing that plan with $26,000 that we got through the grant. So they gave us 50% to update the plan and hopefully with maybe some more income contributions. Sorry, I'm just going to stop the dog from putting the toy over. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, ho hopefully next time around with a modernized plan and more. Okay, we're, we're going to cut and go to Carrie and we'll come yeah. back to you, Sean, when uh, you've greeted your dogs. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, good. Thank you. Um, so, Carrie, if I understand correctly, you sit on the board both of the Community Forest Co-op and the Community Forest General Partnership, which holds the license to, what is it, a third of the island's land base or so? Yep. Um, 
So would love to hear just at a highest level perspective, what are the kinds of things that the community forest is paying attention to when it thinks about fire and, and fire prevention and fire response? And um, the, the planning that went into this grant proposal and how that energy might be re redirected given that those funds didn't come through. Welcome. Oh, thank you, thank you. And um, so the, the context of course is uh, climate change and that across British Columbia and Canada, forests are no longer sequestering carbon as a whole. They've become net emitters. And so even in our forest, we're seeing increased mortality of some species in some places, like with the cedars and with the true firs. And, you know, we know that this is a continuing trend that's going to make it really difficult for our forests to grow old and sequester carbon into the future. So that's without a wildfire. And, you know, from the island perspective, it's just like a super sweet miracle that we didn't have a wildfire during the summers of 2015 or 2017. But we're we're sure that those super dry years are an indication of things to come. And, you know, just as sort of a side note, it seems really obvious that we don't want that future and we really need to mitigate climate destabilization, like to just be strong and steady in our political pressure and to personally do what we can to stay within fair limits of, uh, of carbon emissions. But no matter what, you know, we have to adapt. The community forest has to adapt. And, um, even if we radically turn down emissions levels tomorrow, we, we still have to adapt. It's going to continue to get drier. So, but Carrie, just for clarity, before you go on, I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, because I haven't heard this before, that forests, even without wildfire, are now no longer sequestering agents, but rather emitting agents because of the, the die-off that's happening? Or is this also including the amount that's burning? This includes wildfires and it includes the uh -huh. die-off and it's true for British Columbia and it's due for Canada. It's true for Canada and actually if you go to the National Observer, Barry's just written a couple of super interesting articles about how the um, Canadian government is uh, doing very creative accounting to make it look as if we're not the forests are not net emitters so they can use it as credits but read the articles because you know it's, it's a pretty vast scale and we're very small potatoes in it but yeah. you know i think well, that, that i think that it's fair to say that our forests probably are still sequestering carbon and we want that to continue to happen for any any number of reasons but you know they're, they're also drying certain trees and certain species in certain areas are dying and so wildfire is really uh, you know it's just an increasingly likely uh, scenario and from a management perspective it means adaptive management and it means having to consider more the European model of thinning and creating wildfire breaks especially where the community forest is adjacent to, um, to people's dwellings. So for us, completing a pilot fuel management program is a super high priority. Um, this is not a money-making money operation. It costs a lot of money that we don't have, and we really appreciate the regional district's application for funds for 
a pilot project. And, um, you know, hopefully at some point they'll get it and we'd like to be the license, the partnership would like to be the licensee that does the thinning. And, um, and basically it would just be a really big step toward the adaptive management that we have to do in the era of climate change. And um, fire prevention and suppression is a super high priority and we really need the local knowledge and expertise of island contractors with experience in this work for them to you know be paid to do this kind of work so that we have that um just that capability on the island mm -hmm. and uh there's just areas on the island that are they they were clear cuts at one point they were replanted and the replanting didn't take so we have some areas that are basically super stunted, mistletoe, hemlock, closed canopy. They can't sequester carbon. They're a real fire hazard. And we would really like to be able to remove them because um, you know, other trees could grow that, that could be healthy and there'd be no more nutrients and water available to other trees. And we have some places like this in the School Cove area and in the Carrington area. And we also have other old clear cuts that left a legacy of really nice big fur. And, you know, and, and we would like to keep the wood from any thinning when, if and when we get to do this, um, this pilot project, we'd like to keep it on the island to help meet firewood demand and to be chipped and to be left on the forest floor as we did in the Green Mountain operating area because that increases moisture retention and the availability of nutrients. And, um, and our forest manager who cooperated with, collaborated with Sean on this, Mark Lombard, um, he is really committed to this work and he's really keen to work with the regional district to keep any chips from leaving the island. And uh, we also see the advantage of a pilot project that uh, private landowners could see what forest planning for wildfire mitigation looks like. And, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that we didn't get the money for a pilot project in the Hanks Conservation Park for the recycling center areas. But because, you know, this is going to happen with outside funding, it's not that maybe we could come up with matching funds, but it's not going to come. We just don't have the money to make it happen on our own. And, uh, you know, and it seems like it's a matter of policy. It's a really good thing to do. But we're also really grateful that the community plan is going to be updated and that the Clahoose First Nation will get their plan. So, you know, thanks to the regional district for making that happen. And Sean, if you're able to join us again briefly, could you speak to how the Clahoose um, wildfire plan would differ or complement the overall community uh, wildfire plan? Absolutely. So community wildfire protection plans traditionally pertain to a legal jurisdiction. So while the Clahoosas plan would focus on their traditional territory and the SRD Cortez plan would focus on our jurisdiction, there of course will be recommendations on in both documents on what can the Clahoose First Nation do within their legal jurisdiction right away to decrease wildfire risk, what are items that the SRD and Clahoose First Nation can work on together, what are items that involve outside agencies such as maybe BC Hydro or BC Wildfire, and what are items that we can all work on together with community stakeholders. So while they, the maps in them will be specific to each local jurisdiction, there will be very complementary information because they just, they do have to work together. 
For sure, for sure. So their plan would be for their whole traditional territory of which Cortez is only a small part. That's the plan. Great. Um, and I guess for both of you, Carrier, Sean, given that this funding didn't come through for the, the interface fuel load reduction, um, and given that the aspirations that the community forest has are so much higher than even that pilot. I mean, we talked to the pilot was just, you know, one area within the community forest, whereas you're talking, Carrie, about other areas that need attention as well as um, the interface between private properties, perhaps doing fire break buffers. How, how could we imagine finding the funding or resources to do some of the fuel load uh, reduction that's needed? That's a good question. I'm not aware of other funding sources. Like, yeah. like I think that getting our plan updated and reapplying to the, um, the Union of Municipalities is probably the, the best thing to do at this point. There's In essence, they said your plan is a decade old. You know, we'd rather follow recommendations from a more updated plan. So here's funds to update your plan. Is that in short? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and there's some potential for mat matching funds that I think would um, maybe make them see the application more positively. But I, I also think like time is and is not on our side as things get drier, the importance of this at every level of government is going to be more and more prominent. And, you know, if we don't burn before that, before we, you know, get funding for it, then good. We'll have slipped through the window. Yeah. Right. Well, I'd love to hear some reflections a little bit on that from our guests from the province. So we've got with us uh, Jessica Duncan with the wildfire prevention, uh, sorry, a wildfire prevention specialist with BC Wildfire. And then after Jessica, um, Jeff and Paul, I guess to some degree, who are here with the BC Wildfire Service from Sunshine Coast. So just help us understand how you guys are related or complementary or I don't mean personally, but professionally. Um, so, so Jessica, I'd love to hear also some reflections on the community forest and what we can be doing at a, at a larger community scale to um, have th this island be more fire smart. But just from a, an individual homeowner perspective as well, um, what can people be doing? Maybe that's a place to start. I mean, I've been take, undertaking this mammoth effort around here and you know, I still feel like we're only halfway done. And it's been months, so it's a it's a big undertaking for people on on large rural properties. Anyway, welcome Jessica, and uh, yeah, what what can people do to be more more fire smart? Sorry, my mute button trick wasn't working there. Um, thanks for that. Yeah, it's a big conversation, and absolutely, and I, I echo a lot of what Carrie said as far as um, forest conditions changing and that affecting the fuel. Um, complexes that are out there. Um, that is, fuel is essentially the one piece um, of the fire behavior triangle, which includes fuel, weather, and topography, that those are the three things that affect fire behavior. And fuel is the one piece that we have the ability to control. Um, so that's really where the focus is. Um, and by fuel, we're basically saying anything that can combust, that can be fuel for a fire. Um, in the main point, like we're talking vegetation, um, but also structures and infrastructure can become part of fuel um, for an interface fire, or maybe the fire would start in the structure and spread, like you mentioned with your father's cabin there, luckily being in January. Um, so 
what the great work that's already being done with the regional district and the partnerships with the Clahoos First Nation and the community forest, those are all great things continuing um, to push and promote um, and try to get that funding for the fuels management and, and the planning projects and everything through the community resiliency investment um, program. Uh, definitely great starts. The more that um, we can all collaborate with our partners, our neighbors and our agencies um, to come with a unified voice on helping the province to understand, um, like when we're talking UBCM administering that, those grants and BC Wildfire Service has a big part in reviewing the technical aspects of those um, grant applications. Um, the more that we can kind of paint the picture and understand the direction that we have a good vision and, and um, something to follow along with as far as why it's important and how we have an organization to maintain these fuel treatments um, are all a good piece of the conversation to keep going. And um, I've worked with Sean a little bit um, and some of the pieces that he's been working with um, for the grant applications over the last couple of years even. Uh, and I think are very well set up with the regional district um, for that organization. So I'm, I'm uh, happy to hear that at least there was funding supplied for the planning side of it. And that's definitely an important first part is to get organized, get an assessment of what your situation actually is like, and then start to um, figure out how to make those changes as far as um, getting people to communicate and work together and then start to actually make those changes on the land base as far as the fuel. Um, from the yeah, homeowner... Community forest is definitely, you know, a real blessing to have local management over the, the Crown land here. We, you know, worked on it for a decade. Um, and yet with that comes this responsibility and, and not a lot of funding to support. So it's, it's a tricky one. And, and for homeowners, as I was saying, I've got a husband with an excavator, but it would be unimaginable cost and time. And we've been able to afford to hire some people to help, you know, haul stuff out of the bush. And, but that's not available to a lot of homeowners, especially, you know, retired or fixed income folks. So how can we support people either in the community forest or on other private uh, forest lands or, or just private individual fee simple lands and doing the kind of fire smart work that's required. It's such a huge island and there's so much fuel. Absolutely. So it's definitely an ongoing project. It's not a do it once and then you're good. It's always um, a maintenance. It's, it's regular routines. As far as supporting, as far as the financial needs to get that done, um, it, it is tough. Like the grants are available through CRI. One of the eligible activities um, is for the local government to set up a rebate program that would include a $500 rebate for each homeowner that qualifies through however they set that up um, to get some funds reimbursed for the works they take on their property to reduce the welfare risk. Um, they have to have a home assessment done pre and then post treatment to show that they've in fact helped to mitigate some of the fire smart um, rate ratings there. And that's, I think part of what Sean was speaking to is there's, there's definitely certain um, parameters to stick within when you're getting funding through grants. Um, and he was talking about some creative ways that you might um, be able to come up with to work around that, whether he were to include it as a, as a regional district, program through taxation to, to help support that happening and doing it in an organized way. Um, th those are all kind of creative things to come up with. Um, so that's some of the big picture stuff. So just mm -hmm. right now, here we are in June, 
Yeah. It's too terribly hot. If the homeowner wants to do some work now uh, in anticipation of the fire season, what's top priority? Absolutely. So, and Sean also alluded to it, um, the first kind of 10 meters in and around their home or, or any structure is really the priority. So actually more than half of the houses that are lost to wildfire um, are due to ember transport. So um, when a wildfire is actually moving in, in a way that could threaten structures, it's, it's most often the embers that land in fine accumulations on the, forest, on the floor around their houses, um, nooks and crannies, or get into eaves or under open decks and things like that, that will end up being that ignition point where the structure ultimately could be threatened. So little things that you can do that are um, affordable and easy little weekend projects include just keeping that those fine fuels, so the, the leaf build up, the litter, the needles, um, clean out your gutters, rake, rake stuff up away from your house. There is um, what we call the, the non-combustible zone, which includes the house plus a one and a half meter buffer around the house and really ultimately there shouldn't be anything combustible within that area if you have um including your cedar deck cedar deck not ideal if you have it <laughs> keep the debris cleaned off of it um sure. having some kind of flashing on the siding where the deck meets that that first eight inches up from the deck on the of the lower part of the wall having that be a non-combustible material is helpful closing off underneath the decks where you might get accumulations of leaves and things and then embers landing underneath there that could kindle the beginning of a fire. There's a ton of information online at firesmartbc.ca. A plug, check out the website. There's lots of resources that can walk you through. There's good visuals. There's good PowerPoints that can be shared with the public. Um, homeowners interested in learning more, they can get um, a home assessment booklet and go it walks them through all the different pieces to look at to do an assessment on their own home and get an idea of where they can make some easy changes to help reduce that that risk um, so yeah um, cleaning up sorry go ahead so in terms of the assessment piece and I'll, I'll sort of for Eli's sake when we get to you Eli I'm also wondering if there's some link in here with the fire department um, so Jessica could you speak to perhaps other models other jurisdictions you've seen is there other communities where the fire department or the emergency program um, do home assessments for people? So, you know, maybe I've heard of Fire Smart for a long time. I think it's a good idea. I don't get around to it. I, you know, my printer's broken. What, I, whatever. Um, but if Eli comes over, you know, dressed in his fireman's outfit, and I pay him a hundred bucks to spend an afternoon with me or an hour, walk around my property, and do a bit of an assessment. That money goes back to the fire department or partly to his time. But are there are there any programs like that? Like how can how can homeowners be supported beyond just the information you have online? Absolutely, yeah. So there's actually um, a growing cohort of people around the province that are known as local fire smart representatives, um, LFR for short, uh, and they've undergone a two day training course that outlines um, the basics of the fire smart principles and fire behavior and home ignition. Uh, and they've learned how to do just that, to do fire smart assessments for community, like a neighborhood scale, as well as individual properties. And so they're trained and have the tools to, to go around and complete those assessments. And the, the largest- That's not necessarily the fire department then. Not necessarily, but the largest cohort of participants in that training have been fire department um, staff. Um, in the last training course, uh, I, I'm one of the facilitators for that training. Um, we actually have seeing a growing number of consultants showing up to do that as well. 
So when you're saying pay somebody a hundred bucks to come and walk around for the afternoon, typically with the fire department or some public service um, staff member, that would just be considered a service, uh, you know, as long as they can work it into their schedule to come and do that ideally free of charge. But as the consulting world starts to get this training, um, there might be more like involving in charges and fees to get that done. And that could be something that is, uh, it is an eligible activity under that CRI program as well. Um, as part of your, your planning piece and doing assessments in, in high risk neighborhoods within a regional district or within a local government um, is mm -hmm. potentially to hire a consultant to come and do a large scale assessment to help paint that picture. Okay, here's what we have. Here's where we can prioritize on, on some efforts to mitigate where it will really count. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, no, but Sean, I just wanted to chime in a bit on the local piece. So Please. one of our emergency program volunteers on Cortez has told me how he has two uh, woodsheds, one right by his house and one 20 meters away. And once the winter season is over, he wheelbarrows all the extra firewood back to the shed that's 20 meters away. It's a lot of work, but it's a seasonal fire smart activity. We do have a video on the emergency program YouTube channel where one of those local fire smart representatives talks through the fire smart checklist with a local house to help provide, you know, kind of someone could load it up on their phone and follow along with the checkbook. And by the end of the month, we have been developing a fire smart guide because FireSmart is a provincial program, so what we're working on locally is a FireSmart guide to gardening that's specific to our Western Hemlock, the IOGO climatic zone, uh, how to incorporate uh, native species, non-flammable vegetation, how to work with our coastal environment to better retain water. So really taking those overall FireSmart principles and adapting them locally. Did you say FireSmart gardening? Correct. So uh, online, you'll see the FireSmart Guide to Landscaping, which Jessica, cover your ears. I hate. It's atrocious. It doesn't use plain language. It doesn't use pictures. Uh, you almost have to be a horticulturist who speaks Latin to understand it. So I've, for the last, even before I came to the SRD, I've really wanted to make a simplified local version of that. And we're hoping to have that out for print in a couple weeks now. We were hoping to have it ready for fire smart season, but COVID. Fire smart gardening. There's a new, there's a new one on me. Great. Um, so as Jessica was saying, sometimes, you know, fire departments or local societies take fire smart um, consultations on as being something they do, but that's not something that I understand we contract the, the fire department currently to do. Um, and certainly volunteers could do it, but there's only so much that volunteers could do. They've got jobs. And um, so is this something that could be done through the emergency program or could the terms of reference for the fire department be increased to allow this kind of fire smart support for homeowners? Yeah, th those are conversations that we can definitely have if the fire department's interested. Uh, Somewhere on the Sea to Sky, I believe it's the village of Whistler, their fire department offers free fire smart consultation. Anything's possible. Yeah, no, I, I would love to love to speak to that. Um, all right, well, thanks for that, Jessica. Let's, um, and Eli, I see you're with us, but let's jump to Jeff um, and then we'll come back to you, Eli. So hold your thoughts on that. 
So Jeff, welcome. My understanding is that you are with the BC Wildfire uh, Service on the Sunshine Coast. I think most of the Strathcona Regional District is part of the Vancouver Island or North Vancouver Island, but I believe we're right on the border and so you, you uh, service us. So my understanding is that if, if there's a forest fire, if we, you know, we have failed in prevention, um, what do you then do? Okay, you well, come first, to our rescue on shining horses. What what happens? Yeah. Horses or helicopters? Yes. Uh, sure. Thanks for having us on, Nova. Um, Welcome, Jeff. Yeah. So, so you explained it well there. Yes, Cortez Island is part of the Sunshine Coast Fire Zone, but it's part of the Strathcona Regional District, um, which really doesn't matter a whole lot for the response piece. And even even though um, Cortez Island, I think it's important for people to understand, even though Cortez Island is part of Sunshine Coast Fire Zone, um, we always deploy resources on a provincial level. So um, we use a closest best um, resource kind of policy. So if there was a wildfire on Cortez Island, it may be a crew coming out of Powell River, which is the closest one in the Sunshine Coast Zone. But there's also three initial attack crews, which are like fast response, three person crews um, based in Campbell River as well. So it could very well be crews from Camel River or it could be from both. So um, those borders are, are for administration, but when it comes to response, they, they disappear pretty quick. Um, and so we're going to be, yeah, we're going to be sending whatever resources are necessary on a timely manner from regardless of where they're based to Cortez Island. Now that's assuming that there is not a whole bunch of other fires burning and that you're not stretched thin. So to walk me through what it would look like um, in an ideal scenario and in a really stretched super hot fire year. Yeah, so and good examples are in 2017 and 2018. And at that point in time, we do have to start prioritizing resources across not just this zone and the coastal fire center, but the entire province. Um, yeah. And priorities do go in the order of you know, life and property um, high um, critical infrastructure and high values um, to the general public down to timber values and environmental values. So somewhere like Cortez Island, which is relatively highly populated with values there compared to much of the province is often going to land high up on that priority list. Um, resources would have to be stretched extremely thin before uh, we were not able to respond in some sort of capacity to, to the island there. So I think it's important for people to realize that, yes, we do have to prioritize and resources are finite, but uh, locations such as Cortez, because it's populated, um, is often going to be quite up close to the top of that list. So, um, so can I ask then, I think it was two years ago, was it last summer when some of Reed Island was burning for quite some time? Now I understand Reed is less populated than us. Yeah. Uh, but I, I gather that residents were out there with, you know, buckets and shovels for quite a long time. What was the fire services role there? So we were there from the very first day. Um, and I, I believe we did involve some um, of the public helping us with the transporting crews around. Any island community, it can be challenging logistically, especially in the first couple of days to get um, resources, even such as food and fuel onto a remote island. But we had a crew there within, I don't know, maybe 45 minutes to an hour or two hours of the, the first reports of that fire. And uh, on the first day, there was air tankers from Kamloops. There were helicopters from Parksville. So um, we do involve the community members at times in that response. But 
um, generally we'll, we will be there kind of within, um, if not uh, half an hour, an hour, a couple hours anyway. And, and we do have crews base so close, so it should be within an hour or two at most. Although in my memory is that fire burned for some number of days, a week or so. What, what was the reasoning for not um, being more aggressive in your response? Uh, so we were aggressive, but uh, and it's a good good example of where we're at. You're asking earlier about trends in fire seasons. So last year um, generally was a slow season compared to especially the previous two in 2017 and 18. But at that time of year, so exactly one year ago, the the indices or the forest fuels were very dry on the coast here, as you guys were probably well aware. We eventually got rain in July and it, and it slowed down significantly for us. But um, because of those high indices, that fire managed to spread um, even with air tankers and helicopters and a cruise on site there within a couple hours, managed to spread um, rather quickly. And the other additional um, complication was it was burning um, in a hard to access area. So. Um, it was up on top of a mountain. There was no water available except for pumping all the way up 600 feet in elevation from the ocean. So um, we had aviation resources on there quickly to start minimizing the spread of the fire. But even with those efforts, it did grow to about 17 hectares. So it did take then, even once the spread was contained, it still took a couple of weeks just to even mop up that fire to make sure that every little ember and and bit of fire burning down into the roots was suppressed. Even to, to put our crews in there safely um, to fight fires, which is always our priority, it takes a sequence of events of going in and identifying the, the dangerous cedars that have burnt out, for example, and then falling those trees and then be able to put sure. water on. So there's a, a process that we have to follow to, to safely put out fires. Um, and sometimes in challenging terrain and conditions and locations, like on that Reed Island one, it can take us a bit of time to kind of fully follow through until that fire is completely extinguished. Yeah. Do you have at hand, and you may well not, and that's fine, a sense of how many fires you've responded to on Cortez over the last number of years? I, I can think of. I've been on the Sunshine. Yeah, I've been on the Sunshine Coast here in the zone. This is my third season. And I am just going off of memory here, but I don't think we've responded to any wildfires on Cortez Island in the two previous seasons that I've been here. Um, if there were any, they were very small and insignificant. And I, I think it's good to point out, as you guys are aware, Cortez Island has a, um, a fire department, of course, right? That's why Eli is here. So uh, most of the southern half of the island is under fire department jurisdiction, which um, falls under their responsibility first. That being said, so, so they may have responded to some fires within their fire department jurisdiction. Of course. Um, we do, of course, um, have an interagency agreement with all fire departments across the province. So if there ever is a fire um, within that fire department jurisdiction that the fire department and Eli and Mac Diver maybe feel like is a bit outside of their capacity because, you know, maybe it's larger or it's, it's their focus generally more on like um, structures then sure. through that interagency agreement they can call us and help so as far as i can remember there have been no fires in the last two years on cortez that we've been called to assist with or that fell within our jurisdiction outside the sure. fire department yeah. but um, a longer. yeah um, and, and i know there have been some in the past yeah so before um we switch to eli jeff is there just anything else that you wanted the public to really be awake to in terms of um 
fire mitigation, fire awareness, what they can be doing to either stay out of your way or help you if, if we're in a situation where there is a large wildfire this summer and you're on scene, um, would you be calling for volunteer support ever beyond the, the fire department? Should the public stay clear? What, what do you want us to know? Well, sometimes we do call on the fire department to assist us as well. Um, generally speaking, um, with the public, gone are the days of walking to the pub and signing everybody up to come help fire. It's the world of um, WCB and litigation that, that we live in. So um, we do often appreciate the public helping us out, but to have people working beside us on the fire line, um, it's often not safe. It can be a dangerous environment. So sometimes we have to ask the public to help us, but more in a logistical capacity, whether it's lending a vehicle or lending local knowledge or um, helping us lining up, you know, accommodation and food, which, you know, we'll, we'll of course pay for, but sometimes we don't have that local knowledge. Um, of course we don't as much as you guys would on the island. Um, as far as awareness goes, I think that there's a lot of resources out there and more and more coming out every year. So um, if people want to go to the BC or to our webpage, bcwildfire.ca, there's information on prohibitions on burning. So it, it's good for people to be aware when they can burn and what sorts of burns they can do at certain times of year. It's updated instantly pretty much when there's wildfires and when there's prohibitions on. Through that website, there's an app now you can download. So if you go to bcwildfire.ca, there's even an app you can download. It gives you all that current information on your phone. You can even click on a button that's near me function. So it'll give you statistical information for your area. Um, you know, any restrictions that are in place, active fires, current fire danger ratings. So it's a great tool because often in the summer when there's smoke in the air or if there are fires in your area, um, people are, are very hungry for information and, and expect that. So that, that's a great tool for people to tap into if they have questions or want some information. Great. Thanks for that, Jeff. Um, and I see Sean just had to leave. Uh, he wasn't able to join us for the full time. But is there a relationship between the fire service and the emergency preparedness program around wildfire fighting? And if so, what is that beyond the planning? Uh, well, so the regional districts are always responsible for any sort of evacuation alerts or evacuation yeah. orders. So we'll make recommendations, but it's always the regional district that makes that decision and then alerts the public. So through their websites. So that, that's part of our relationship. Um, I suppose it would fall under planning. And we haven't done it as much with Sean and the Strathcona Regional District, but um, we also do do um, tabletop exercises with some of the regional districts. So, for example, here in Powell River, um, annually we'll do a tabletop exercise with the local fire chiefs to kind of go through scenarios. What if there was a large wildfire, you know, that cross over our jurisdictions or we needed assistance between agencies? Um, so those sorts of situations as well. We also do send our crew out, not this year because of COVID, but we'll send our crews out to do cross training with fire departments. And we have done that on Cortez um, right. every year that I've been here, except for this year, where we'll go out and we'll make sure that our gear is compatible, that um, we're familiar with the people, right? Because as we know, sometimes those relationships can be key in a stressful situation if you have Absolutely. a familiarity with, you know, people and their organizations and their trucks. So we do make sure yeah. to try and do that training with um, islands such as Cortez and fire departments just to make sure we have those relationships and that understanding of each other too. 
Great. So last question for you. Um, do you want to speak yeah. to trends at all? What are you noticing over the last number of years in terms of um, increased fuel load heat? Uh, yeah, so it's concerns? a bit of a bad news, good news answer, I suppose I can give you. Um, the bad news is that yes, and I know Carrie alluded to it, you know, climate change and fire seasons, not just on the coast and Cortez Island, but, you know, across BC and the world, really. Um, fire, we are seeing more intense fire behavior and fire seasons are spanning um, a larger season, right? Starting a bit earlier on average and lasting a bit longer. That's, that's the reality we live in um, and why what um, Carrie and Sean and Jess were talking about, about trying to be more preventive is so important because there's only so much we can do in a reactive um, situation, yeah. right? It doesn't matter how many helicopters and people we throw to fire when it's dry enough out and windy and hot, there's only so much you can do. And just go, and just yeah. go right yeah. But the, I suppose the good news, just because I like to end on the happier note is that this season, obviously it's been rainy and the, the latest report we got from predictive services is that they're predicting that June is still looking to be below average for fire um, activity. So um, it's continue, it's forecasted to be continued to be wet and below average temperatures for this month, which bodes well for this fire season because um, quite often the amount of rain we get in June um, can indicate just how severe a fire season might have throughout the summer. Great. Well, thanks yeah. for joining us, Jeff. Thank so you. last uh, fire related expert here, Eli, welcome. You're, I believe, the deputy chief of the fire department. Is that right? Here on Cortez? Um, I'm, I'm the captain of the department, but not the deputy chief. Um, ah. Actually, I have, I'm really glad Jessica and Jeff are on the call. And I have a few questions for both of you guys, if, if I can take the time for that. Absolutely. I love you. Just, just before we get into that, for those um, listening who aren't quite as adept with fire as all of you are, um, can you just speak really high level what the fire department does in your responsive department? Um, how you work, I mean, Jeff has spoken quite a bit about how you work with the, with the wildfire service, but if the province doesn't need, to be, doesn't need to be called in, you respond primarily to structural fires, is that right? And then I'd love any of your reflections on whether, you know, and perhaps this isn't fair to put you on the spot and you can decline, but I'd love to have further conversations around whether the fire department might start shifting into providing fire smart assessments or doing more proactive work. And if there's a way of, of funding any of that. So welcome Eli, thank you. Um, as far as uh, the fire smart, home assessment thing that's actually something the board's been talking about over the last uh, couple of weeks and it's definitely something that we're, that we're interested in. What's that? I think that's because I've been poking Chris. Uh, okay I don't know I don't know where it started probably that's where it started but uh, it is definitely something that seems to have a general support from the board and um, we would need to find out if the if the LFR course is currently running with COVID and all of that. And I think we have some questions we haven't, we haven't resolved yet around whether there's liability for the department or the members who were offering that service. But uh, it's definitely something that we're, that we're interested in pursuing further. Great. Um, and whether it would be funded through the department or we would charge a fee or if it was Purely volunteer hasn't really been addressed yet, but in principle, 
I'm quite supportive of the idea of offering that as a service and I think the rest of the board seems to be as well. Yeah, and I was I was just going to put to you and Sean and, and Sean's had to leave a little early, but whether even shy of that, there couldn't be something in mailboxes or information out this time of year when we're all starting to think about fires about just some of the, the basic fire smart information that uh, Jessica and others, her colleagues work with. You know, it's, yeah, it's great it was, to yeah. have those resources are available, but to have a local person that, hey, Eli, we know you, you know, say, hey, you should do that, um, often goes a long way. We have uh, a stack of the the pamphlets from the province that I think I dropped off. Uh, I was on the folk you call about fire smarting and stuff uh, on the radio a couple of months ago, I guess. And I left another stack of them at the post office and we have more. So I'll, uh, I'll check next time I go and see if there are still any at the post office and try and keep a supply there for people. Sure. Um, and it's certainly something I talk up in general. Yeah. Uh, and I do. I think it was in a conversation that you and I had, if I'm not mistaken, a while ago around the, the value of roof sprinklers and just any of those kinds of little tips that you can give homeowners. We've now gone out and bought the equipment for you have yet to install it. But I think it was you who were saying that the, the statistical number of houses that are saved because of roof sprinklers is, is quite dramatic. So we're in the process of putting in a, a very large pond and we've got a pump and um, yeah, any support that homeowners could have at all and thinking through those kinds of things and bulk buying equipment and installation would be fantastic. Yeah, I think that would be good to follow up on. So um, we've got some questions for Jeff and, uh, and Jessica. And then, so I, I invite questions from all of you to each other. And uh, it is 5.30, so I just want to remind people on the radio, you're listening to Cortez Community Radio at CKTZ, uh, 89.5. And you're welcome to call in shortly if you would like. Uh, Aton is in the station to take your calls. You can call in any time if you have questions of any of our guests at 250-935-0200. Or there's a, a few of you here joining us on Zoom who have not yet spoken. So after questions between you, just open it up to, to others. Please, Eli. Um, Jeff, a uh, couple of things. One is, I, I don't remember where I ran across this, but in, in the case of a major event on Cortez Island, do you, guys, do you guys do structure protection as well, or is structure protection all on the local fire department? So we, we will, the BC Wildfire Service will do structure protection. Um, our initial attack crews have limited resources um, to do that, but in an in a evolving situation, we could uh, send an IA crew, initial attack crew out with sprinklers and pumps and try and do something in the short term. In a, a long-term um, situation, you know, a larger incident was going to span days and weeks. We would be bringing in um, contract um, structure protection units. Yeah. Um, so, so we, which would fall under us. So yes, we do have that ability. Um, generally, it, it takes a couple of days to mobilize them and get them over to a place like Cortez. So the, the short term would be a bit makeshift, and long term would be uh, more of a professional unit. And then, in the case of of fighting structure fires that would that would be on us though like, that's correct and it's a really good point eli that our crews are not trained and they don't have the safety equipment to fight fires so we're not actually 
allowed to, as you well are aware, just the yeah, chemicals yeah. and the dangers of, you know, propane tanks bloodying or um, just inhaling any of burning substances from not just houses and structures, but same thing for vehicles. Our crews um, could respond, yeah. but then they're gonna just kind of stand by and make sure that burning structure does not spread into vegetation. Um, but yeah. we can't actually action those fires. Yeah, that makes sense. And then another question, uh, when you're talking about the, the old days of going into the pub and rounding up people, um, I know there are a number of people on the island, I guess they're not current this year since there's no training, but who have done the, the S100 in the past, um, like members of the forestry community and so on. Are you able to take on people with current S100 training? You know, just for all of us, can you tell us what S100 is? It's the basic, uh, the basic forest fire course that the province generally delivers to uh, forest workers and they've taught it to the fire department many years. Okay, thank you. It's, yeah, it's, it's like Eli said, it's a two-day course that's kind of your baseline um, for anybody that wants to be on the a fire crew, be it for the BC Wildfire Service or contract crews, and there, there's more training as well that goes on, but it's kind of the, the base foundation training. Yeah. Um, and so generally, I guess to answer your question about would we hire those people that have S100, generally no. Or, uh, or take them on as volunteers. Generally not on the spot. Most, most times we would want to have that, um, what we call pre-orged or pre-organized. So um, there is an ability to hire people, um, at, you know, short term in a pinch, but generally we, we will lean on um, pre-identified resources first. And it's not always BC wildfire resources, but we also employ, well, we'll hire contract crews or local First Nations crews, but um, just the process to go through to make sure that people are truly certified um, to not just S100, but other certifications need to have, yeah. um, takes time. So we like to try and pre-identify those people and that those resources ahead of time. If there were enough people on Cortez that were interested and wanted to um, pre-build one of these contract crews, that's something we could discuss and, and follow through with though, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that kind of leads into my next question, which is um, the, I gather there's a provincial equipment registry for you know, water tankers or heavy machinery and all that kind of stuff that could come in handy. And I know, I know there has been equipment on the island that's been registered with that in the past. But as far as, as, far as what kinds of stuff would be good to make sure is registered, what, what's the most valuable stuff for you guys, for us to have available? Great question. And it's actually a great segue, Eli. So I'm new in the wildfire officer role um, here for the Sunshine Coast Zone this year. I've been in the zone for three years, but it's my first year in this position. And one of my goals is to increase, again, our, our pre-org or pre-organized um, capacity. So um, I might even connect you with Paul Bondock one of the, my staff in the zone here who runs that part of our zone, um, because we are looking for more resources out there and specifically on Cortez, it's kind of one of our goals to increase our capacity. So one of the big ones for us is water tenders. And of course we can rely on the fire department 
but I'm sure there's other water tenders on the island or excavators yeah, or other big ones. Yeah. yeah. Um, so those are big ones. Or if there was a contract crew, which comes in units of five people, that would be another one for us to kind of look at. But as far as equipment goes, yeah, water tenders, excavators. Um, sometimes we use bulldozers or feller bunchers, but not generally on the coast as much. Um, so yeah, maybe we'll try and connect uh, here in the next uh, little while here because that, that's a great conversation for us to have. Great, because it's something that I, I, have, uh, I have suggested to people in the past, but it seems like there's a broad range of things which are sometimes included in the list and knowing which ones to focus on. And like I know of at least one person on the island who's been putting together a couple of, of water supply trailers for having on, on job sites and stuff like that. And I think he'd probably be into, into registering them and just that would be something that the fire department could encourage on the island is, is getting people to sign up who have resources that'd be useful. Yeah, we would we would absolutely love that. So um, I'll follow up if I follow up with Mac, he can give me your contact information. Is yeah, that right? Sure. Okay, yeah. I'll get I'll get Paul to follow up, and yeah, that that would be an awesome conversation for us to have, and we're we're very interested in that. Cool. Yeah. Um, and then the final thing is, I was just wondering if you had any idea, given COVID and all that, if there was going to be wildfire training happening at all this year. Um. I don't think it is going to. Um, generally, we try and do that in the spring. Usually, we would have been yeah. to Cortez already, but obviously, yeah. you already mentioned because of COVID, um, it just none of that stuff has been happening this year. Um, yeah. And the problem is, once we get into the, the fire season, then we're either responding or on standby, and it gets much harder for us to kind of make it over to, to places like Cortez. And, and I'm not even sure if, if Cortez is encouraging visitors yet, anyway. So um, next season, we'll, we'll make a strong effort, you know, assuming we get back to normal and yeah. try and do it on an annual basis, but this might be just a, a gap here. Yeah. Well, we have also done the theoretically non-expiring uh, playbook wildfire module, but it's really good to do the annual thing with you guys anyways, because uh, it's good to practice with your guys' equipment and vice versa and all that. So, yeah, and and good for good for our staff and our crews as well. And honestly, we just love coming to Cortez whenever we get the opportunity. <laughs> good. Well, that's lucky for us. And a follow up to that. So you're speaking about identifying, you know, equipment and trained personnel that might be able to be pulled on in, in emergency situations. I also wonder about mapping water sources. So, for instance, we're going to be putting in a very large, uh, you know, rubber line pond up here that could potentially um, be uh, used in a response or we could water our multiple house roofs from it or um, so are those kinds of things that you would like homeowners to be registering somehow with the fire department so you're aware of water resources on the island? We're, we're very interested in that and uh, we do try and keep a list of available water sources um, there in our, our department map books. So all of our vehicles have a map book for address finding with the water sources that we're aware of marked in it. So just for and, anyone listening, um, if you've got a one that you've not already registered, a large pond or water source that the fire department might not be aware of, that would be of great service. And which brings me to sort of the perennial question about 
uh, water tanks and funding and locating more water tanks on the island. I know there's been some conversation about connecting with highways and uh, trying to find some grant funding for, for more water reservoirs. Any, anything that we can do to further that effort, Eli? Um, it's definitely something that has been a long running topic, topic of discussion for us. And uh, we'd really like to see more significant tankage. Um, we've often spoken of putting a big tank in near Ben Fulton's because there looks like there's potentially some, some ground we could put it on. And he's got a license on the creek there, which he's willing to uh, let us use to fill it. Mm -hmm. And I believe we've we've kind of gone over the areas that we would like to have better served by tankage, but uh, I'm not aware at the moment of any any good funding sources for that. So that's definitely something we'd be interested in. Mm -hmm. We're one of our long-term goals is to to get to a superior water shuttle rating which is basically we have to prove that we can haul a certain number of gallons an hour for a certain length of time. And that results in a, apparently quite significant discounts for people's insurance and so on. It's, at that point, we would be roughly equivalent to having hydrant protection. So that definitely will require adding more water sources. And we've been changing over our existing sources for larger supply lines and so on in working towards that. Yeah. Um, also, for people who are putting in tanks or water sources, uh, we're happy to talk to property owners and give recommendations as far as making it easy for us to connect to and so on. Great, great. Any other questions from anybody else here on the call, either fire folks or, or otherwise? And just a reminder, we've you know got a few minutes left if anyone is listening live and wants to call into the radio at 935-0200. Uh, so anyone else? I have one other comment that uh, Mac mentioned when I was talking to him this afternoon, which is something that's really significant for us that uh, homeowners can do is to work to improve access to their properties. Um, and <laughs> Here on Cortez, is that an issue? Yeah, just, you know, imagine a big fire truck coming up your driveway and if there's anything, it might be a challenge because <laughs> there are a lot of properties where we can't actually get in and that really slows down our response and we end up with super long hose lays and, and a reduced ability to deliver water as a result. So what would it take? How, how long, how wide, if I'm walking my driveway looking, what do I need to be looking for? Uh, well, I don't know. I don't have specific dimensions for that. I'd, I'd okay. have to get back to you on that. And that's actually probably something that we should, we should see about putting an article on Tideline or something that would give some details. But, I think it'd be uh, really great if, if you and the SRD together was to put, you know, an article on Tideline, something in people's mailboxes that just went over some basic fire smart stuff, some of these Cortez specific questions to, to landowners. Um, I'd more than happy help with that if there's any way that um, some homeowner outreach could happen. Yeah, that would be good. The, you know, the water or equipment registry question, any of those sorts of things. Yeah. A uh, little note about what the community forest is up to. 
be great. Any other questions? Don't all be shy. I, I have another comment I'll put in while, while Eli's got my brain spinning on our, our pre-org. So um, when Paul and we're, again, it's, it's a bit of a long-term goal here for the next year is to really expand our capacity for resources, especially on island communities. It's not just um, equipment we'll be looking for, but also looking for accommodation and restaurants that can provide food for our crew. So if we do have a, a larger incident that requires us to be there for, you know, five days a week, two weeks or something. Uh, we may also be looking for that kind of um, logistical support and infrastructure too that, um, that can help support our crews, right? We become self-sufficient for a number of days, you know, um, between 24 hours and five days, but when it goes for a long enough period of time, we, uh, we need to start leaning on, you know, um, local resources. So we'll be looking to pre-org that sort of stuff here in the coming year as well. Great. Um, well, it sounds like we're close to wrapping up. So Jessica, I'd love you to just share again with any homeowners who are listening. Uh, if again, if you've got a few handful of hours and a few weekends in the next month, what I'm hearing from you is sort of under decks in eaves, uh, clean gutters, remove fuel load from sort of a 30 foot radius around your house or structures. Um, I know that some homeowners have, you know, including myself increasingly, have been trying to pick up any branches or anything off the property for a much larger radius around the, around the home. Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you inspire people to, uh, to take these actions that we all know we should be doing? Yeah, um, it's really up to the homeowner to understand sort of how the state of their property could affect the um, vulnerability of their, their home should a wildfire challenge it um, and understand that how that affects their neighbors as well like whether it's a large rural property as I'm sure most of them are um, um, or they're tighter together um, the ember sources that could help that fire spread more readily are the things that you want to take care of, clean up those so you're not going to um, have a fire move from your property and affect your neighbors as well. Um, check out the resources again on, on firesmartbc.ca. Um, those pamphlets as well that Eli was speaking to, you can order those for free online. Anyone can ask for some of them through that website. Uh, if you go to the resources tab, there's a lot of great online resources and videos and things as well that can be really inspirational um, to help the homeowner kind of see where they fit in the puzzle and what roles they can play. Um, simple little weekend tasks and puttering that can um, kind of go a long way in the, in the long run. And for those who are interested in taking the next step as we are you know, just beginning to do at our property here, um, I wonder whether the fire department or anybody, maybe it's something the fire department, the community forest, or I don't know, uh, to help bulk order, bulk buy, you know, for, for sprinkler systems or fire pumps. I, I live on a shared property and there's f uh, multiple homes here, each of which has the exact same kind of pump. So, you know, if, if there's a fire at one place, you can, you know, run and borrow the other one or other interchangeable parts, just any, anything like that beyond um, the, the super simple weekend basics that we could be encouraging people to do here. How might we organize? 
Yeah, and I think that goes to sort of the preparedness and planning. Talk to your neighbors, come up with a little community plan, understand what each person has to offer and where each person might be vulnerable and looking for help from their neighbors. Like the community effort is really where you're going to get the biggest win from any of that. Um, work with the local fire department. Um, maybe have get together. Maybe there's some community hall, more events like that where you can really get together and brainstorm and make those plans. Part of the, the plans that the community forest and, and regional district will be working on will be higher level, but they'll look to those sort of things where we're at, what's our situation. But that can happen at any scale. You can work with people right on your own street to figure out kind of that picture as well. Yeah. And Eton, if you're with us, um, I might just ask you to speak ever so briefly, as you've done on a couple of other calls, to the, the Smelt Bay uh, community emergency planning network that there is because I think in in some respects Smelt Bay is ahead of the curve for other communities on the island in doing just that in coordinating with each other. I, I remember a presentation at the hall a couple years ago where um, I believe we had some emergency pro program people from Quadra come over and, and a few people from Smelt Bay talking about an inventory that they had done in that neighborhood of you know who had what who had what equipment and uh, chainsaws and so how can neighborhoods organize? Aton, you've, you've got a key to that. Um, I don't know about that. I know I heard that that had been done, ah. but uh, it hasn't been updated. Okay. Uh, and it's so it's on my list of things to do uh, is to follow up on that uh, because we do have like about um, 40 people in the uh, on an email list in the Smelt Bay area, so um, uh, that that's a that's a great tool um, for uh, emergency preparedness and also a way to um, create like a a little database for the neighborhood uh, to basically outline any of the things that uh, could be available to mm -hmm. neighbors um, in an emergency. Um, uh, or extra supplies, that type of thing. So it just and, sounds and like that can be set up for all the neighborhood in, in a couple of ways. One was with the emergency preparedness planning, and then the other is this email listserv, and they're complementary but different things, a way of communicating in a neighborhood. So if, if there's any other neighborhoods out there that are interested in, in doing similar work like that, Aton <laughs> has the ability or you know get in touch with me to set up a bit of a listserv in your neighborhood. Um, there's a you know an island wide I don't know, listserv list, uh, where you can create new lists for <clears throat> anything. You know, the tourism group just created a new list. So any sector at all, doesn't just have to be geographic neighborhood based. Uh, so that's a great service that Aton has started and I'm trying to support him on. Um, and then if you want to actually create a bit of a neighborhood emergency preparedness, uh, I don't know, not plan, but database, uh, there is a model for that in Smelt Bay, but also on Quadra. And so be in touch with myself or Howie at the, at the regional district. There's good models about how to, uh, to do that. Have a, a relatively private inventory of who has what on their properties available in the case of whatever emergency might come. And, and then that list is held only by, you know, a few folks who are in um, responsible positions. So wrapping up, I think any final questions or comments from anybody? Either our guests. Uh, I have a couple, uh, a couple more questions for Jeff. Actually, um, 
during one of the S100 courses a number of years ago, the, the forestry guys suggested that during the dry summer season, we uh, put you guys on standby anytime we have a structure fire or something on the island, just to give you guys a heads up um, as, a, as a precaution. And I just wanted to confirm that that was still something we should, we should have as a standard procedure. Yeah, so I think if, if there's, if you're ever, you know, if there's even a question that maybe we're going to need wildfire, you know, we're not sure yet, give us the heads up. And so you can call into the 1-800 center. I'm going to do this off memory. It's 1-800-663-5555 uh, or star 5555 on your cell. And I'm just going to make sure I got that number right. Jessica can tell me Sounds if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's good. Okay, so so that's our that's the provincial call reporting line. So if you're ever thinking, oh, geez, we might need forestry's help, give that number a call and provide um, provide as much detailed information as you can, and then we'll kind of get alerted that hey, they might be looking for help as well. If you think it's just on the line, but you're it's hot out and it's dry, yeah, don't don't be afraid to ask for our crew to come out there, and and maybe we come out and you don't need us. That's okay. Yeah. Um, usually I've, I've gone through dispatch for that before, but, uh, you know what, that's probably your guys' procedure. So that would be more for the public. I think you're right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and then the other thing is a number there's, I'm not totally certain off the top, but as far as I recall, uh, for wildfire events that are within our general service area, we still, uh, ask dispatch to get us a task number from you guys before we before we action those yeah. but, uh, and certainly for anything that's outside of our our service area certainly if it's outside your service area but if it's within your guys' service area then you wouldn't need a task number from us okay. to respond the task number is so that the fire department can um, be compensated but okay, if it's so within your jurisdiction, then then there's not meaning compensation, so you don't need the task number or the green light yet. Cool. My understanding is it also covers it covers uh, liability for being outside of our our jurisdictional area in those cases as well. Yeah, certainly before, if you can at all, before actioning anything outside your jurisdiction. Um, call through dispatch, get that task number. And, um, you know, most times, especially on Cortez, where it's a bit more remote, um, they're going to say, yeah, could you act on that for us? Here's a task number. That would be great. Um, yeah. But there are some circumstances where it's, you know, a smoldering campfire and we happen to have a crew 10 minutes away where um, we might just send a crew. Cortez is not going to be one of those situations. So, yeah, yeah. But do, do get that task number and make the call before... Yeah, moving outside your jurisdiction is just yeah. covering you guys. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the bulk of the island, which is not in our jurisdiction, is not particularly accessible. So it's right. not like the Mary Point area, which is, I believe, gradually in the process of being included. But there are some accessible areas that are outside, but most of it's like the north end where we wouldn't really be able to get there anyways. But it's always good to know. Right, yeah. Thanks. I have a question for Carrie. 
change the turn the tables a little bit here. Um, I'm I'm just curious with the the community forest management, and you spoke a lot to um, some of the the disturbances and stressors of of tree well being with the droughts and everything. And I'm curious if um, what the community forest might be doing as far as considering um, species transitions and that sort of thing in, in replanting as you move through. Can you speak to that at all? I can a little bit. We're limited by what um, the ministry allows us to replant. And so, you know, we're basically doing what they suggest. It seems like planting um, alder in some places might serve as a fire break, but, and also, pine has um, some more promise, I think, in terms of sustaining a warmer climate. Um, but basically, we're limited. There's some private land on Cortez that's trying things like sequoias and redwoods and, you know, species from further south, and we are not um, able to do that at this time, but as the ministry that writes our regulations progresses, we will as well. Great. Um, and as a follow up as well, like you spoke obviously a fair bit to the thinning treatments in there. And I'm curious um, if the community forest is doing anything as far as even pruning that can help with um, log value and all of that, that can also help sort of the ladder fuel removal for the keeping the fire out of the crowns, the treetops? Um, we're not. We would like to be able to do that and we don't have a budget for that. Um, the things that we are doing, for example, which you know are actually quite expensive as well, are um, shipping our wood waste in, in cuts. So instead of having burn piles, it's getting shipped and pressed down into the forest floor for greater moisture retention. And we're doing uh, pretty small openings and we're going to be doing more, um, more like selective thinning. And, um, and then that way we'll be able, you know, the, the forest will more naturally regenerate with some of the uh, genetic diversity and, you know, kind of place-based suitability that, that those trees have. Awesome, that's great. I like to hear that um, the smaller sort of patch size and selective harvesting from my perspective. So I do have a background in response and operations as well, just like Jeff. Um, and I think on the coast, a lot of the time, it can be those open cut block kind of slash fuel types that can challenge us the most as far as the rate of spread and um, how dry they get being so exposed to the sun. So um, I think that's really great to hear. And just as far as um, any public out there listening um, as well, that it, it's really cool to hear the different approaches that community forest there is taking in consideration of wildfire mitigation. Nice work. Yeah, yeah, the openings, the openings are very small and just, you know, going forward, we're super committed to do what we can and like many well-intentioned -inten initiatives, it's a matter of the resources available to do it. Yeah, there's, there's nothing better than having local people look after local resources who um, are faced immediately faced with the consequences of either good or, or poor management. So thank you, Carrie, for your decades, literally decades <laughs> of dedication on the island in so many ways, but especially to our forests. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and thank you, Eli, for stepping up 
you know, continuously here in the, with the fire department and to Jeff and Jessica for joining us. I really appreciate on almost no notice, all of you uh, coming together here. I didn't know quite what I was doing a couple of days ago. So great gratitude. Um, a number of people have been talking to me about fire. It's just, it's the season. So my commitment um, is to follow up with the regional district and the fire department and the um, community forest specifically around some communication out to the public. Jessica, thanks for your um, reminders to the, the FireSmart information. And I don't know if we can just get 500 of those to put in, in mailboxes or some better way of doing it with that, but we'll be in touch. And uh, Jeff, may it be a wet year for you. <laughs> Thank you, Aton, for uh, supporting us week after week after week here. I welcome any thoughts from listeners about uh, topics for future weeks that are most relevant. Um, I'm up for doing it every week if we can do it uh, in a way that's relevant and meaningful to people, otherwise happy to go to a little less uh, intense over the course of the summer. So this is the conclusion of number 10 of your virtual community meeting series. Your host, Nova Anderson, and uh, be well, be kind, look after each other. Thank you all.